Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Economist. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm Jason Palmer. And I'm Aura Ogunbi. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. You probably remember that our word of 2023 was ChatGPT. Rolls off the tongue a little more easily than generative AI, of which ChatGPT is just one example. We take a look at where the field is after a year of explosive growth and what 2024 might hold. And London's got one, Stockholm's got one, Singapore too. And soon, after decades of wrangling, New York City will have one. We look at how a planned new congestion charge might mitigate Manhattan's legendary traffic tangles. But first... On paper... The Democratic Republic of Congo has plenty going for it. It's four times the size of France, stretching all the way from Africa's west coast to its centre. It has a youthful population of 100 million. There's a wealth of the minerals most needed for the world's transition to green energy. Yet, brutish colonial rule, a chaotic passage to independence in 1960, and a long dictatorship have all left it one of the weakest states in the world. Corrupt politicians, other African countries and rebel groups plunder those sought-after minerals. A majority of its population live in extreme poverty and a decades-long war in the East recently turned for the worse. Elections are due to begin tomorrow and all the candidates, including the incumbent president, are campaigning on the promise of real change. But few will be holding out hope of that actually happening. I travelled to the Democratic Republic of Congo, a huge country in Central Africa, and I was there really to see the run-up to the elections, which are for everything from president to municipal officer. Kinley Salmon is our Africa correspondent. And these elections could give Congolese a real chance to choose leaders who they hope will reduce poverty, who could make progress towards peace. But voters who many believe were were cheated in the last election in 2018 don't have that much faith in the electoral process this time around. Now, remind us about that last election. Well, in many ways, the results of that election were pretty shocking. There were leaks of the official data from the Electoral Commission, and that showed that a candidate called Martin Fayulu had won with some 59% of the vote. And that compared to just 19% for Felix Chisakedi. 
another opposition candidate. Yet it seemed there was a backroom deal of some sort between the outgoing president, Joseph Kabila, and Mr. Chisakedi, who was named the winner rather than Martin Fayulu. We should say that Mr. Kabila and Mr. Chisakedi strongly deny any wrongdoing. And after plenty of dispute and toing and froing, America eventually endorsed the result officially, casting democracy into question in a way in this vast, important country. Before we get onto this election, who's running and what's likely to happen, tell us about your trip, Kinney. What is the Congo like? Well, Congo is certainly a full-on place to visit, one could say. Kinshasa, the capital, is a bustling, dynamic city with some of the worst traffic I've ever experienced. It is a very intense place. There is poverty really all around. The country has very few good quality all-weather roads, meaning that traveling by road, even from the capital to many provincial cities, is just about impossible. So it's not an easy place to take the measure of. But I was invited to travel with the president's campaign team, who set out to show me and some other journalists something impressive near the city of Lubumbashi, Congo's second biggest city in the far south. And I, on that trip, met you know lots of different people, including the motorbike drivers, when our bus had taken a wrong turn and nearly got stuck in the mud, you know, we had to ask for directions. So eventually our bus driver did find what they're looking for, which turned out to be somewhat to the busload of journalists' surprise, a few half-built classrooms and an unfinished health clinic. And outside that building site, there were a group of women milling around. This is, is Nadia. She was actually delighted with what was happening, despite the state of the unfinished building. She told me that the President Chisakedi does beautiful things. I think after years of neglect by politicians far away in the capital, some Congolese, pretty understandably, are frankly pleased with any sign of progress. OK, so at least some people are supportive of the current president. Do you agree with Nadia? Has Mr Shisekedi made some progress? Well, look, he can point to an economy that's grown in recent years at rates of 6 to 9%. That, though, is thanks mainly to rising mineral prices. The government has managed to get its own revenues up as well, and that's given it a bit more money to spend. And Mr. Chisakedi has decreed that primary education and childbirth care should be free, although the implementation of both of those has certainly had problems. But there are bigger issues that remain almost entirely unsolved. The number of people living, for example, on less than $2.15 a day, that's the international standard of extreme poverty, is higher now than it was when he took office. And it totals some 60% of Congolese. Despite the mineral prices, the Congolese franc, which is used alongside the US dollar in the country, has slumped. And many are upset about that. Of course, there's also a lot of criticism of the president in Congo. I spoke with a rapper in a suburb of Kinshasa who said it's been years and it was still in the same mess. Nothing changes. You know, he says candidates come to us and say we're going to change this country, you know, but we've been lied to, he told me. And that frustration can be seen elsewhere too. 
when the president attends football matches, for example, sometimes the crowd chants him dollar ikita, which is lingala for the dollar is too high. Food inflation on the cusp of the election has hit 170%. And perhaps above all, in the east of the country, this war that's been going for almost three decades now uh, has displaced about 7 million people. That's more than anywhere else in the world except for Sudan. And so there is huge frustration that the president's promise to bring peace to the east has been utterly uncompleted. So is anyone able to challenge the president? Well, it's tough to challenge the president, in part because under Congo's electoral law, there's just one round. And so if there's multiple opponents, as there are, that tends to split the vote and help the incumbent. The president's campaign posters, really unlike those of his opponents, seems to be absolutely everywhere. The National Stadium in Kinshasa, for example, is covered in huge posters of Mr. Chisakedi. On that stadium alone, there seem to be more posters than some major rivals in the whole city. Despite all this, his most credible challenger, and we should say that it's very difficult to know because polls are are unreliable, but appears to be Moise Katumbi, who himself, though, doubts the legitimacy of the upcoming election. Themselves, they say, is going to happen. Which type of election? Which type of election? He's a very wealthy businessman who also owns Sub-Saharan Africa's most successful football club. You know, Mr. Katumbi has earned also a reputation for, for pretty effective management and for building roads and infrastructure when he was governor of Katanga province in the southeast from 2007 to 15. You know, and when I talked to him, he kind of relentlessly contrasts his own record with that of the president's. I left Katanga contributing from 200 million, less than 200 million to over 4 billion. Mm. I met him on a rainy day in his large compound in a very upmarket suburb of Lubumbashi. I think uh, people know what I did. You know, when I started my business... Mr Kutumbi isn't exactly an outsider. He has at various times been allied both with the former President Kabila and with the current President, Mr Chisakedi himself. I should say I tried very vigorously to interview President Chisakedi himself. In fact, I flew around the country to do so but wound up, rather than interviewing the president, being holed up five minutes from Mr Katumbe's house and so seized that opportunity instead. Kinley, apart from Mr Katumbe, who else will contend with the president? Well, when the election campaign began, there were fully 26 candidates running for president. A few of those have rallied around Mr Katumbe now, including some serious contenders, but that may well not be enough. He still has several other rival candidates also running, including Martin Fayulu, who you know, allegedly won back in 2018. I'm feeling well. I'm really comfortable with the people of Congo. And when I spoke with him, he still it was very compelling, denouncing corruption in, in Congo, you know, railing against the, the broken political system. They voted for me in 2018 and they are ready to vote for me again. But he also, frankly, appeared pretty tired. Unlike in 2018, he no longer has the backing of the broad swathe of opposition as he did in 2018, of course, with the notable exception of Mr Chisakedi. So there's a risk that, you know, while he'll still garner plenty of votes now, he may end up siphoning support away from Mr Katumbi, who he really doesn't seem to like. Well, none of the candidates' positions or desires for government will mean anything if as Mr Katumbi suggests, the elections are rigged. 
Well, that's right. And there is always already kind of huge dispute about this. Six candidates, including Mr. Fayulu, but also Dennis McQuaggy, a, a doctor who won the Nobel Peace Prize and who's also running, are suing the head of the Electoral Commission, alleging intentional irregularities. Among the complaints in Congo are the quality of voter cards themselves. These seem to be so badly printed that the person's name and photo often rub off completely, uh, rendering the whole thing utterly illegible. There's also been lots of dispute about exactly who is on the electoral roll and whether it was properly audited. There are lots of fears from candidates about duplicates and missing voters. But we already know that some voters will be missing. About 1.7 million Congolese in the East are simply not going to have the chance to vote because it's too dangerous to even attempt to stage elections there. And from my conversations with diplomats in Kinshasa, there also seems to be a, a genuine risk that, as in 2018, much of the West might sort of wave through a pretty questionable result. And dodgy goings-on in the election it could also present another risk. Uh, some fear even a coup isn't out of the question. Kinley, do you think the president could still win? Well, look, it's, it's very hard to predict just because there's such a lack of reliable polls. But the opposition is split and the president is both the incumbent, which is normally a pretty big advantage. And we sort of seen as I traveled around his posters absolutely plastering the country. So, yes, he could still win, but there's huge uncertainty about it. Uh, and that raises the question that many worry about in Congo, which is, what exactly election observers are going to say about this election. Domestic election watchers told me that they thought that technically and logistically this election is Congo's worst ever. But, you know, when I spoke with Western diplomats, they seemed strangely upbeat. One talked of Congo's vibrant democracy. They, they said, yes, it might be messy and flawed, but they expect with any luck people will still express their will. That is... I think, very difficult to say at this stage. And so there's both going to be a question about the election day and the result, uh, but also a question for observers about what exactly is the bar that they want to set for a passable election in Congo. Kinley, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. 2023 has been a huge year for artificial intelligence, particularly the generative kind. Now, as you've heard, Microsoft's announced plans to improve its Bing search engine to include artificial intelligence. The company boasts... So today we've learned that Apple is going all in on LLMs or large language models. Uh, that's Meta the has been the unveiling its plan to bring artificial intelligence into our daily routine. It's the year that ChatGPT made headlines prompting fierce debates over the ethics of AI. If an artificial intelligence creates a piece of art that looks just like a Basquiat original, 
Who owns it? That is one of the core questions being debated as AI-powered artwork floods the internet. We got these it was the year artists and musicians started wondering about prospects for future work and whether to pursue copyright cases for AI pilfering their past work. Breaking news, Sam Altman is out. Uh, this is a stunner. And it's not just the technology itself that's been making news. The personalities behind it and the business of AI have been equally intriguing. Artificial intelligence firm OpenAI says co-founder Sam Altman is set to return as CEO just days after he was fired. All this revealed two tribes of AI watchers, the boomers and the doomers. That is, groups for whom all this proliferation would end in human triumph or human demise. Either way, of course, for now, it's going to make some people bags of money. Over this past year, AI has finally arrived. Scientists have been working on it for decades. These algorithms, these ideas are nothing new, but it seems that it's finally worked to some extent. Abby Bertix is a science correspondent for The Economist. This is really exciting because AI is kind of transitioning from a scientific enterprise, a research pursuit, to something that's like a commercial product. As with these really powerful technology, there's always the potential of dual use. And when there can be very good things and very beneficial things, there can also be bad things. And there's a lot of safety concerns as we try to wrap our heads around the potential misuses of this model and what its biases and potential negative repercussions could have for society. So you say that this is the year that AI has essentially come out of the lab and gone prime time. What is it that's sort of marked that breakthrough for you? Well, the biggest thing was ChatGPT's cannonball splash a little over a year ago. So that's kind of cheating because it was in 2022, but the end of 2022. And that set the scene for everything that kind of unrolled in 2023. All of these models have kept scaling up. They keep getting bigger and bigger because it seems like, at least in the past year, if you make the models bigger, they work better. So GPT-4 is just miles better, qualitatively different than GPT-3. You have other companies building the models of their own, using proprietary algorithms, proprietary data sets, trying to see if they can challenge the GPTs. You have open source outfits trying to make models that are open and able to be used and studied by academics rather than whatever black box is working behind the scenes at OpenAI. And at the same time, while you have all these outfits, research institutions trying to make bigger and bigger models, you also have people trying to figure out how to use them, which is very different from building it in the first place. Like, where do these models fit inside of bigger architectures? Things have changed drastically. But what's materially different about what we're seeing now? So there are two things that are different. One is that AI has been productized. It is a product that now millions of people have gotten personal firsthand experience with. It's not just, oh, you're using a social media platform whose recommendation algorithm is AI. You're actually interacting with an AI model yourself, which is one thing that's different. And the other is that this type of AI is slightly different from a recommendation algorithm or a classification algorithm. It's generating. So it's creating text, wrapping our minds around what this sort of text generation thing that seems like it could automate a lot of human cognitive processes, how to use that and what that should do is quite new and scary and exciting. Well, let's get into that question about the scariness. What are the fears? What are the potential misuses that have become apparent as all of this power has become apparent? The misuses are as plentiful as the uses are. 
One of the big ones is about misinformation or disinformation. The fact that now there is a system which can generate massive amounts of very fluent human-readable text at the click of a button is really worrying. I mean, we've had bot farms and misinformation, disinformation forever, but it's always not been super fluent or been constrained. And now, all of a sudden, you have this fluent text generating capability. There's also concerns in terms of bias, the fact that these systems are trained on essentially the entire internet and might also contain and exacerbate any biases that humans may have. And the biggest fear that seems to be rocking the top of the tech world is the fear of artificial general intelligence or what's going to happen if scientists are able to engineer a system that has agency and can do things and can act in a way that surpasses humans along many different fronts. And we're not there yet, but there's a lot of fear that as these systems are improving so rapidly, we might get there at some point soon in the future and how we should think about controlling and regulating and putting guardrails around those systems so that some dystopian future doesn't come to pass has been a really hot topic of debate, I would say. Okay, putting the dark vision aside just for a second, though, what does the sort of research frontier look like now, given that crazy progress, that explosion this year? What's going to happen over, say, the next year, do you think, amongst researchers? There are lots of different avenues to go. One is going to be trying to figure out how to make these models even bigger. When you train a big model like this, the hardest part isn't necessarily just pressing a button and saying, yeah, I want 100 billion parameters rather than 10 billion it's actually figuring out how to make all those computers work together and talk together in an efficient way so that you can actually do the training of that model. And the other side of that coin, a lot of research is being done into making these models smaller. Because big models are very hefty, it means that only the biggest research institutions and biggest companies can even afford to make these models. So if you're able to make these models smaller and just as good, that means that you'll waste less energy, less money training these models and using them down the road. And then there's also a lot of research being done on the qualities of these models. One big thing is alignment or getting these models to do what we want them to. When you're done training a large language model, you essentially just have something that can generate text. And that doesn't mean that it can answer questions. It doesn't mean that it's a helpful assistant and figuring out how to get it to be helpful, honest, harmless are things that you have to kind of add this extra layer of training, this extra layer of optimization to, and figuring out how exactly to do that in the best way is difficult and something that people have been spending a lot of time and money on, especially around the problem of hallucinations, which means trying to get the model to not make things up. Abby, thanks very much for your time. Thank you, Jason. is Manhattan really famous for? Sure, sure, Wall Street, Times Square, Broadway. But ask most people to close their eyes and imagine it, and they see gridlock. It's notorious as one of the worst places to drive, or more often than that, sit fuming in a motionless car. In Midtown, the average speed is less than five miles or eight kilometers per hour. But a decades-old idea might just make that a 
tiny bit better. After years of consideration, New York is about to get a London-style congestion charge. Rosemary Ward is The Economist's New York correspondent. Earlier this month, the MTA, or the Metropolitan Transportation Authority, the agency charged with implementing congestion pricing, gave the plan the go-ahead. It has taken decades, a couple of false starts and lots of debate, but congestion pricing in the Big Apple finally has the green light. And so what does the scheme actually look like? Who, who pays what, how, when? So the pricing revolves around Manhattan's central business district. So midtown all the way down to the bottom of the island. Drivers of cars entering that zone will have to pay $15. Lorries, depending on the size, will either be charged $24 or $36. Taxis, instead of paying fees every time they go in and out, will add a $1.25 surcharge per ride. And rideshare drivers like Uber or Lyft will see a $2.50 charge. And at night and other off-peak times, fees will go down by 75%. So London has had a congestion charge of this sort since, well, for like 20 years or something, the initial idea generally around reducing congestion, hence the name. I guess that's the same motivation in New York? In part. Definitely one big reason is traffic. And if you've driven there or taken a cab, you know how agonizingly slow it can be. And it's been getting worse. Sometimes it does feel like you'd be quicker walking. At the moment, more than 900,000 cars enter the zone daily. The hope is that the fees will improve traffic by discouraging some of those cars coming into Manhattan. And interestingly, unclogging the gridlock should also help the economy. Traffic costs the city, businesses, residents, commuters, $20 billion a year. But the main reason the plan was approved and congestion pricing finally has the go-ahead is because money is badly needed for the transit system. The MTA, the agency that's going to run the scheme, It's also the agency that runs New York's subway, buses and commuter lines. And they're going to collect these funds and use them for its capital projects. Some of the signals on the subway date back to the 1930s. So the help is badly needed. And how is that going down with the public? Because it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a fan favorite in London at the outset. I think since most New Yorkers actually already take public transport, for the most part, they're fine with it. Some grumbling in the outer boroughs, but most of the complaints have come from New Jersey. New Jersey is New York City's neighbour and many people commute across the river from the state to work. And New Jersey drivers already pay tolls for coming into Manhattan and they're upset they weren't given some sort of rebate or credit. New Jersey's governor has filed suit against the plan. So has a mayor of a town near the George Washington Bridge. One expert I spoke with told me that if New York is really committed to doing this scheme, they will come to some kind of settlement or agreement with New Jersey to make it a little more palatable. And you mentioned that there had been lots of false starts and plenty of debate about this. What's what's changed? Why is this now finally happening? Well, it has indeed been a long road to get here. The idea has been around since the 1950s. Sam Schwartz, who's better known in New York as Gridlock Sam, tried to introduce congestion pricing in the 70s when he was city traffic engineer. Mike Bloomberg, when he was mayor, tried to enact pricing but didn't get anywhere. 
but state lawmakers finally voted for pricing in 2019. And since then, there's been some holdups, some delays, but there's finally momentum, in part because those capital projects are so badly needed. People don't even want to go on the subway anymore. They're so fed up with delays. So it seems like it's finally coming. And Janet Lieber, head of the MTA, expects the initiative to begin in May, which feels really soon. And already about 60% of the infrastructure needed to charge cars is erected. But given all the obstacles that have faced this plan, proponents will probably hold off on celebrating too much until that first car gets charged. Rosemary, thanks very much for your time. Thank you, Jason. That's all for this episode of Me Intelligence. We've just dropped a couple more bonus episodes of Boss Class, our limited series on management. How did you find it? Write to us at podcastseconomist.com. And if for some reason you still haven't listened, I don't know, maybe because you don't subscribe to Economist Podcast Plus, then I think you should join us. All the details you need are in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.